ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. What happens when the world gives up believing in God? Is it sufficient simply to believe in good and in right, or must there be a deeper reality supporting it? Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. Today's ID the Future explores such questions in the second and final portion of a conversation among four eminent scholars on the topic. Peter Robinson of the Hoover Institution is our host, and his guests, in the order that they speak after his introduction today, are author Douglas Murray, historian Tom Holland, and from the Discovery Institute, philosopher Stephen C. Meyer. Here's Roger Scruton. Douglas. And the question, of course, is going to be, do you subscribe to this? Anybody who goes through life with an open mind and heart will encounter moments that are saturated with meaning, but whose meaning cannot be put into words. These moments are precious to us. When they occur, it is as though, on the winding, ill-lit stairway of our life, we suddenly come across a window through which we catch sight of another and brighter world. Yes. A world to which we belong, but which we cannot enter. There are many who would dismiss this world as an unscientific fiction. I am not alone in thinking that it is real and important. You could sign your name to that, couldn't you? I, I actually have the volume of essays that that appears in as a preface which introduction you know, by me. And you know perfectly well that's exactly what yes. I uh, I think it's a beautiful expression of something that Roger intuited, and so do I. Um, it, it is, and that it, is deeply Christian, isn't it? Well, well, I, I not think I, I, or? I, 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 I think it, it, it's uh, 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 somebody feeling that there is a nymph in a stream in Greece in the fifth century would probably say. Oh, well, I thought I had say, Holland corralled at last, um, and now he's off on nymphs. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> here's, here's what I say about it: is, is, it, is, it, is it there Roger is, is referring to a very important instinct, which is the thing that should always jolt uh, a true atheist, which is that everybody in their lives will experience moments of awesome feeling of some kind, transcendence. It might happen with uh, seeing a person. It might feel in, in, in uh, eros. It might be in human love. It might be in a, in a place, in a building. It might just be waking up in the morning. Um, everybody at some point in their life has to contend with this question of what is this thing that I feel to be true and cannot reach. Christians would obviously say it's the Christian God. I think the rest of us have to say, we'll live in the question. Stephen, you've got a, speaking of questions. Well, a couple things. Um, the, the, the arguments that first persuaded me of theism were actually philosophical arguments. And there has been, in the last 30 or 40 years, a tremendous renaissance in philosophy towards belief. You have major figures like Richard Swinburne at Oxford or Alvin Plantinga at Notre Dame and this whole Midwest school. So there are plenty of philosophers who now are very uh, convinced theists, uh, whether they be Christians or Jews or something else. Um, and I, I think the, 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 uh, the, one of the huge questions that we've inherited from the Enlightenment is the question of knowledge. How is that we know the world around us at all? And it, it turns out that, that secular materialist thought has been unable to 
uh, provide a justification for belief in the reliability of the human mind. Uh, and, and that has led to this radical relativism that has expressed itself both philosophically and in, in the culture. And one of the best reasons to believe in the reliability of the mind, which was one of the reasons that led to the scientific revolution, was that our minds are made in the image of God, who is a rational creator, who has endowed the physical world with uh, a, a kind of order and rationality that we can perceive because there's a principle of correspondence between the way he made our minds and our ability to perceive the, the, the reason and the, and the order and the design that he put into nature. The, this was the key idea of intelligibility that inspired much of the scientific revolution. And so the problem of knowledge, I think, is solved elegantly by the, by the presupposition of theism. You know, so there's a, there's an argument, the argument that persuaded me was uh, sometimes called the argument from epistemological necessity. Uh, St. Augustine put it this way, we believe in order to know. If you believe first in the, in the existence of a creator who made our minds as a reliable instrument, instrument to know the world that he made, we also then ha can have confidence in our ability to know things. And this was the, the basis of the scientific revolution. So I think philosophically, there, there, just as there is scientifically, I think, movement back towards a theistic position, I think that same thing is happening in science. I think in philosophy. In philosophy, right, yes. Right. Now, I take very seriously what Douglas said earlier about the, the problem of confirmation bias, that we all want to believe the thing that confirms the beliefs that we already have. Um, there, there is a way, I think one of the benefits of philosophical training is that it allows the assessment of arguments irrespective of, of the motives of the arguer. And I accept that there is a motive on behalf of, uh, of, of believers, of Christian and other theistic believers, to believe in God because it, it, it helps answer some of those existential questions and it allows a, it gives us a hope for the afterlife. We all want that. On the other hand, there's also a motive that's been often pointed out for people who, dis, you know, who don't believe because it, not believing in, uh, in God also releases us from uh, a sense of moral accountability to a higher authority. And we'd all like to be autonomous at some points in our lives at least. Now, I think ultimately uh, uh, those two things are a wash and should be treated as a wash. We should set those motives aside and try to assess uh, uh, the case for or against a transcendent deity based on the evidence and based on some very fundamental philosophical arguments. That's what I attempt to do in the book, Return to the God Hypothesis. I think there are a lot of people who are in the field of philosophy, philosophy of science, epistemology, who are really wrestling with these deep questions at that level and trying to extricate them from both the cultural baggage and the intellectual baggage of the last few centuries and to reassess the God question afresh in light of evidence and apart from some of these things that are not strictly speaking uh, evidential matters or matters of reason, but rather of cultural baggage. If, if I was a militant atheist, I would want to push back against Stephen and his colleagues by saying, even if you find what you think you're looking for, it doesn't necessarily mean the Christian God. You might, oh, yes. you might and, and, and this would seem to me to quite, but if I was in Stephen's position, a separate and show. if I was in Stephen's position and leaning on the secular atheists, I think the thing I would be asking them is, there is a modern understanding of, of, of yourself that doesn't ring true with your feeling of yourself. So for instance, uh, uh, we don't feeling like our, our sense of ourselves. We, and now Tom might argue this is because we've just inherited this from Christianity, but- I would, yeah. Douglas, I would. You would. He would <laughs> you would. He's made but, that rather clear. But, yeah. but, but I would suggest that many of the modern materialist 
um, understandings of ourselves, the sense that there's no particular purpose and so on, doesn't ring true with the sense people have of themselves, right. which I is that there yeah. must be yeah. something in ourselves that is extraordinary and it must have meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. And either we're meaning-seeking beings and there is no meaning or there is meaning. But it, it doesn't sit well with us when we're told you're just, for instance, a consumer. You would go, I'm what? It just, it, we it's feel ourselves to be something else. And I would lean on, yeah. well, what is yeah. that? Well, and this is why it's so much more interesting to, to talk to, to you than it is to talk to Richard Dawkins, because they, 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 the, 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 the ardent scientific atheists, the new atheism, which was just a repackaging of late 19th century scientific materialism, um, has written off all of these things. It, it, it's, it's blind and deaf to the things that are truly human about us. We all sense that there's something more than blind, pitiless indifference at work. And, uh, and I, I think wrestling with that is, is, where, is, is the, the, the thing we all should be doing. Yeah. I think also a, a case can be made for the significance of Christianity that um, enthusiasts for evolution would, would accept. That we would accept? Enthusiasts for the for theories of evolution would accept that we, mm -hmm. mater materialists who are in favor of, who believe in theories of evolution. Tread carefully. Well, he knows this ground. Go ahead. Okay, but what I would, what I, so what I would say is that, um, objectively speaking, by whether measured in terms of adherence now or the influence that it's had on the course of global history, Christianity is the most successful explanation for what human beings are doing, what life is for, why we were created, why there is suffering, all these things. You know, Christianity has offered human beings the most successful explanation for that. And at the very to, least, and at the very least, at the very least, yes, and I think it may be true. But you won't. Well, do that. well, if 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 you you know, I mean, well, on, on, on the materialist level, you might say, well, it's an a, adaptive strategy, and therefore, based on terms of how successful it's been, it's certainly worth considering. You could frame it that way, Tom. You could frame it it's that way. It's certainly worth considering. But, but there's I a, consider there's a philosophical that a triumph way. to no, get you there. No, that was well said. And it, you, you could frame it as a, a, a successful adaptive strategy. Or if you look at it philosophically, you could say that, that the Christian world and life view has a comprehensive explanatory power, both about human failing and about the evidence for the reality of God that is unique, and I think that's a reason to believe it. You get, you get a word, and then I want to close us by going back to Matthew Arnold, okay. if I may. Is that fair? Just a very quick observation, which I yes. do think we need, to, we need to acknowledge, which is we are talking, of course, about the West and Western faith at the yes. moment. And uh, Tom, certainly I know, has, has, has traveled, has seen the experience of the beleaguered churches in the Middle East, as I have, yes. and I have seen in our own day Christian faith of a kind that our predecessors would have recognized and we don't remember is going on. And if you travel to, as I have, northern Nigeria and you see people praying yes. the Lord's yes. Prayer and yes. saying, yes. deliver us from evil, and they were chased across the fields and they lost their brother the day before in a machete attack, these people are burning yes. with a faith that our predecessors would have recognized. Uh, well, absolutely, but I would say on top of that, that what's been happening in Africa is a process of conversion akin to the conversion of uh, Western Europe and Northern Europe in the, first in, in, in the early Middle Ages. Yeah. Oh, um, it, it is, you know, we're living in one of the great ages of Christian evangelism. Yes. And I would say also 
that um, we're living through. So there are two great, I, I think future historians of religion will look back at this age and say there are two great kind of convulsive currents, one of which is radical Islam, which is in everybody's faces, it's part of the headlines. Yes. The other is Pentecostalism, which is below the surface, but yes. is blaze, you know, I, I, it's a great spirit rush. I mean, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the blaze of the spirit. And that is transforming, uh, you know, it's, it's not only uh, converting people to Christianity, but it's also, say, transforming the balance between Catholicism and Protestantism in, in Latin America. Um, so it, this is an age of very vital Christian faith. Right. Back for, for purposes of reigning in this program to some, something we can deal with here, back to Western Europe, at least, and the United States. Matthew Arnold, 1867, Andover Beach. Arnold feels the appeal of Christianity, but isn't a believer. He writes later in life, after writing this poem, he writes, never let us deny the story of Jesus, its power and pathos, but it never really happened. Close quote. Okay, so here we are. Let's just take a moment and go through the poem a bit. 1867 is the poem. He writes of the sea at night. The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair. He can see the white cliffs of England. He can see the lights glimmering on the French coast. He can hear the roar of the waves. The sea of faith was once too at the full, but now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, faith ebbing away. Now listen to this closing passage. I think it speaks to a great deal that we've discussed here. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, so there's some hope of dignity and nobility and human love, even in this world from which faith is withdrawn. But then he continues, For the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And here we are, as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight. Have you ever heard a better description of social media? Swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. Okay. So what do you make of this? Is that a fair description of where, you, where we stand now? Where you think we stand now? That we're forced to look? No. No, not at all. Um, I mean, we remain the heirs of, of, of the, the Christian way of understanding social fabric, our social responsibilities. Um, they may be without the, um, without the frameworks of, of overt Christian belief, without the familiarity with the scriptures, without church practice that had structured these patterns of belief in earlier ages. They may be going off in slaloming off in all kinds of strange directions and ways and mutating, but they remain the West remains a civilization with deeply held moral principles. And so we, we, I, I do not, I would not cat categorize us as ignorant armies clashing by night. The tide of faith is coming back in or, or he was wrong well, and it never really went out. We still have faith. We still have faith that, 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 that human being, I think, uh, we have faith that human beings have an inherent dignity. We have faith that, that the rich have responsibility to the poor. We have faith in an ideal of universal brotherhood. You know, they come under strain, but the animating principles that govern liberal society in both Western Europe and North America seem to me profoundly Christian still, 
that doesn't necessarily depend on believing that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but they remain deeply held beliefs, I think. I come to you last. I, I, I wonder last if I, so that Douglas oh, could Douglas, go last, yes, but yes. I, I, th I agree with Tom about the inheritance of, the, of, of Christian principles and sensibilities, but I, th I think there's something inherently unstable and even dangerous about merely affirming the ethical uh, in, in endowments of Christianity without underlying belief, because what we have, as you mentioned, is this hyper form of Christian, of a secularized hyper form of Christianity, which we now call wokeness, mm. that I think is eating our culture from the inside out. And it does not have within it the kind of uh, inherent moral constraints that Christianity also, no capacity for forgiveness. No, no capacity for forgiveness. A, a very different doctrine of original sin. It's selective. It, 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 it assigns and original. No mercy. It assigns original sin by group rather than uh, uh, forcing us all to acknowledge that we're we're fallen and, and come short. And so, uh, I think there is, and it has a revolutionary in, in, impulse, which it, it cannot be fully satisfied, much as in the, in the French Revolution. So, I think these hyper. Christian, these secularized hyper-Christian forms of expression actually can be a bit dangerous to culture and that it's much better to ground Christian belief in an affirmation of the real, that it really happened. In other words, the real belief is, then comes, with real belief comes some of the, the constraints upon the, ex, the expression of this revolutionary impulse. We are all fallen. There is no utopian future possible. We have to adopt limited forms of government and more modest aims in this world. And I think that uh, that form of, uh, of religious belief, whether it be Christian or Jewish, is entirely possible intellectually. It's possible as, to be an intellectually fulfilled Christian or theist today in, in a way that maybe it didn't seem possible at the end of the 19th century. Last word on the sea, on the tide of faith, Douglas. Um, a couple of things. The, the first is, is this. Um, I agree with almost everything that Tom said, but I would change one word. Tom kept on saying, we have faith in these things. I would say, we have hope in these things. The metaphysical underpinnings of our society, it sort of unites everything I've written in recent years, are much shakier than people realize. We are on exceptionally shaky ground. The whole structure that has fallen out from underneath us has not yet been realized by the people standing on top of it. Yeah. But, but, so, and, but, but I think that what Tom described is this, we have faith in these things. I'd say we have hope in these things. The, the British novelist Julian Barnes wrote a slightly uh, saccharine but touching in a way phrase uh, some years ago. He said, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Yeah. And, and I think that the, certainly the West, we miss God. And there is this remaining, not faith, but hope. A hope, it might not be that the Christian faith is true, but a hope that there is some meaning, some purpose, that we're not just here to eke out a living and have some fun, but that there is something beyond ourselves, something we see, we want to reach, and that, that's the, the hope in our age. Or, or but the, we the consequences of, of Christian belief that Tom or, or that they are can persist without the metaphysical foundation. Exactly. And, and the question is whether that's a, and a real hope, a false hope, or one that is likely exactly. to be Exactly. Currently, we are sitting on the tree 
It has been very nearly Douglas successfully. Murray. It has very nearly successfully been sawn off, and we will see if we can remain sitting. Douglas Murray, author of War on the West, Tom Holland, author of Dominion, and Steve Meyer, author of The Return of the God Hypothesis. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson, shooting today from Fiesole. I think I pronounced it correctly. Fiesole, Italy. That was the close of a conversation between Tom Holland, Douglas Murray, and Stephen C. Meyer, hosted by Peter Robinson on his Uncommon Knowledge podcast. You can hear more of the same kind of stimulating content by looking up Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution on YouTube and also at their homepage, hoover.org. We appreciate the opportunity they've given us to replay this discussion here. For ID the Future, this is Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.